Hi, I'm Dr. Julia McGee. I've uh, been a psychiatrist at the LA County Psychiatric Emergency Rooms for the past 10 years. So I'm excited to share what I know and hopefully help. Um, I believe we're going to start this off with a meditation from Jean Lundquist. So I'm going to hand that over to you, Jean. Thank you so much. We're just going to take a few moments just to settle in and take a break um, before we get started on this really important topic. And thank you so much for taking the time. Um, so we're just going to start by closing your eyes and settling into a comfortable position. We're going to start by taking two deep breaths. And now we're going to gently place our hand over our heart, feeling the pressure and warmth of our hand. If you wish, you can place both hands, noticing the difference. Feeling the touch of your hand on your chest, the natural rising and falling of your breath in and out. Linger with the feeling for as long as you like. Now ask yourself, what do I need to hear right now to express kindness to myself? Is there a phrase that speaks to you today? We're gonna just go through a couple together, taking a breath after each one. May I recognize my own light. May I be connected and held in my community. May I remember my goodness. May I stay strong. May I be patient. May I be kind to myself. May I be at peace. May I give myself the compassion that I need. Settle on the affirmation that means the most to you today. And with a final deep breath, express gratitude to yourself for participating in this practice.
And when you are ready, open your eyes and adjust once more to your surroundings. And with that, we will begin the rest of the presentation. Thank you so much for your participation. So today we're going to talk about how to interact with people experiencing psychosis. And I just want to talk about the elephant in the room for a moment and acknowledge that I understand a lot of people are uncomfortable with the idea of having to be close to people who are experiencing severe mental illness. And in fact, I know often people will cross the street to avoid dealing with people who are experiencing mental illness. So this might be a challenge for some people, and I'm hoping that I can explain things in a way that will in fact make it more comfortable for you to deal closely with people who are experiencing psychosis. So first of all, I just want to point out some of the myths that are um, surrounding psychosis. Uh, a lot of people have this assumption that people uh, experiencing psychosis are dangerous. And I just want to emphasize that people are actually, people experiencing psychosis are not violent by nature. Uh, and in fact, they're often afraid and overwhelmed by the symptoms they're having. They do not choose to have this illness or choose to have their symptoms. And in fact, their symptoms are quite treatable. Uh, so let's just go to the first slide. What is psychosis? Um, so psychosis is just a fancy word that means that people who are experiencing psychosis have a really hard time figuring out what's real and what's not real. And that means that doctors, maybe their best friend, maybe even their own mother trying to convince them that what they're thinking or experiencing isn't real, it is not going to work. Um, you can give them all the facts in the world and they in fact will not be able to, you cannot convince them that their experience is not real. And the reason for that is because psychosis is actually a brain illness. So when you think about the brain, the brain controls the way we act, the way we move, the way we think, the way we speak, the way we hear, the way, the way we see the world. So in fact, when illness is affecting all of those brain functions, that's what, how you see psychosis expressed as well. It's going to be affecting all of those parts of the way we um, move through the world. So you might first be able to hear the symptoms of psychosis when you're paying attention to how it affects the parts of the brain that controls your hearing and vision, your speech, and your thinking. So we're going to start off with hearing and vision. So when it's affecting the part of the brain that controls hearing and vision, you get hallucinations. And hallucinations just means that your brain is actually causing you to hear and see things that no one else can. Um, and we're going to look at an example of this. We have a video clip of a woman who is experiencing hallucinations. The last time she needed to be seen, they had to send the doctor to us. Well, it's about 12 noon on the 29th. She was fine about 30 minutes ago. I went out and went shopping. When I came back, I, I came into this. 
Because I feel sorry for them because what they have to do to them, they're not doing it for their nationality. That's not my show. And I feel sorry for them, but it doesn't do good for their nationality. Because you're not doing it for your own nationality. Because you're not doing it for your own nationality. That's why you're not a real son, too. No, no, no. Come on, act like you're like they talked about for something about the Gansis. That's what that means. Because somebody said that they're going to shoot it to death when another girl had to get you to get to the real person. But these are the people that we never got out to long term because they kept killing it out or because they killed um, officer they never got to talk about that because they killed over those only 12 months old. Uh, that's an example of a woman who's experiencing hallucinations. And I just want to step back and talk about what might be important for you to know if you're dealing with someone who's experiencing hallucinations. So the first thing to know is you don't want to argue about what's real or what's not real. So you don't want to say to her, hey, who are you talking to? There's no one there. Um, rather, uh, you and also you want to remember that people who are actually hearing the voices, the actual voices that people hear are often saying terrible, mean things to them. But we're only hearing the other side of the conversation. And so oftentimes what we're hearing is the person responding to these mean and terrible things. So the person might be angry, they might be cursing, they might say offensive things. So it's really important to remember that everything that they're saying is not about you. It has nothing to do with you. So you should not take it personally. So uh, if in fact uh, people are bothered by what the person is saying and or perhaps you yourself are bothered by it, uh, you could always take them to a quiet space away from other people and remember not to crowd their own personal space while they're hallucinating. So what happens when psychosis affects the part of the brain that controls speech? In fact, when you're talking to someone who's experiencing psychosis, it actually might be a pretty confusing experience because um, it's hard to follow, and that's because their words can get jumbled up. The sentences, the ideas get all jumbled up. They might repeat the same words over and over again. Or sometimes it's even more subtle. And just at the end of the conversation, you just find that you're confused. And that's not because you forgot to have your cup of coffee this morning, but it's actually because their brain is making it difficult for them to communicate in a way that's clear. So we're going to look at a, an example. Why do you think you're a god? Because there was a time when, when I was at to myself was a piece of rock, a piece of straw, and a little tiny pin. Mm -hmm. And I stretched it all out, and I just went mm, like that, you know, mm -hmm. and made a needle, and I poked myself. Why did you poke yourself? Because I wanted to get the devil out of me, because I didn't want to be possessed. I didn't want people to think I was possessed, you know? People get into the future. I'm not really into the future. See, they, they gave me the future, and I, and I destroyed the future, you know? I, I hate the future because I'll never be successful in the future, you know? I mean, my eyes were bulged, and I had the future in my head, you know? And I just said, no, you know? I said, no. Okay, so now we're, we're going to look like, see what he sounds like after treatment. Well, I started having problems really bad when I was about 16. But 
I was afraid to say anything to people because I was scared. I didn't. I thought it was normal to hear voices. So I never asked anybody if it was or if it wasn't. So I suffered a lot before I get into the hospital. I used to see things a lot. I used to see dragons, and different butterflies, everything. It was weird. Okay, so what might you need to know if this young man is sitting in front of you? Uh, I think the important thing to remember is not to be confrontational. Uh, you don't need to say, you know, hey man, you're not making any sense. I don't know what you're talking about. Um, but rather just offer a, a time and a space to just listen and listen without judgment. And it's perfectly fine to say, huh, I, I'm, I'm not sure I'm understanding that. Tell me more about it. So now let's take a look at what psychosis sounds like when it affects the part of the brain that controls thinking. So you, you might get two pretty common symptoms. The first one would be paranoia, which just means that people are suspicious of what you're saying, of what you're doing, or why you're doing it. And another really common symptom, which you've probably heard about, are delusions. And that just means that someone might have a really strange and false idea that they will not change their mind about no matter what you say to them, no matter how many facts you pre present to them. I am Zestus Okentower Malik. That's, that's the name they try to give me at a really Armageddon or Armor Mason. Okay. How old are you? I'm no age, to tell you the truth. And, and uh, they try to give me an ID age at uh, 40. Supposed to be at 43, but they give it at uh, 48. It's, it's incorrect. Can you tell me uh, the story, all the important events? Just, just well, the activity of what I've done is the movement of the small print of Jesus Christ. Is what I've I've done. It's it's brought me homeless and towards uh, uh, following the flock of Jerusalem and getting them pinned down and and trying to get them sent to Jerusalem, like the small print of Jesus Christ says. And however, is what's going on at this point is we're in the midst of making arrests and hopefully getting them sent to Jerusalem. And hopefully I'll get my check then for what I've worked for 43 years as Omnir Mason of the IRS. Oh. Um, what's the highest education level that you attain? I'm more of a master degree and doctor. Okay. Do you have any family? I had some children, but they got killed up north. Yeah, what brought me down here, you know. And they're really, you know, my dear children. And uh, I, I dearly miss them, but I try to help them out out there. They're having a tough time in Athens out there right now. It's, you know, a lot got killed up in Seattle yesterday too. Yeah. A lot died, you know, of Athens. So we're in, we're in danger yeah. of extinction, you see. So. And that's that, that's what I do. You know, that's what I've always had to do for us. You know, to tell you the truth, you know, fight against extinction. So, so. What, what would you say is the worst part about living out here? Them not listening to the truth. You know, really hearing the facts and and, and, and facing the reality of truth. Mm -hmm. You know, that's how I really feel. 
what might you do if this gentleman is is sitting next to you and he's he's talking about being a mason of the irs and arresting people and sending them to jerusalem uh, I think the most important thing first to know is that you don't want to encourage their strange, strange beliefs. So you don't want to say, hey, yeah, you know, the IRS really does spy on people. Uh, so yeah, probably what you're saying is right. Um, instead, what you want to do is focus on the feelings that you can imagine that someone might be having if they're facing the brink of ex in extinction, as he described, and say, oh my, you know, that must be really scary. So you can just comment on the feelings rather than the facts. So this is um, our last part we're going to look at is what you might see if psychosis is affecting the part of the brain that controls our movement. So when psychosis affects our movements, what we get is what we call agitation. And agitation just means that they might be pacing, they might be rocking, move their, moving their body in a strange way, even moving objects around with no clear purpose. The reason they're doing that is because they're actually feeling this extreme anxiety and uh, restlessness, and that's the way their body is expressing those feelings. So we're gonna take a look at example of two different gentlemen uh, who are experiencing agitations. So the next example is a more intense agitation. Okay, so uh, both of these examples are pretty different. Um, 
But the important thing to actually remember is that both examples of agitation are really what we would call mental health emergencies. Um, um, but if you're in fact standing there and experiencing that, uh, the important thing to remember is don't force conversation, don't raise your voice. In fact, it's important to be calm and gentle uh, when faced with that kind of agitation. You don't want to call them crazy or psychotic, but this would be the time when you would in fact either call the mental health emergency phone number that you've been provided with, or if there's a mental health person on site, you could go and get that uh, person to help out. Uh, also, the thing you want to remember is that if someone is making unsafe decisions that might put themselves in danger or other people in danger, that would also be a mental health emergency and an important time to activate that uh, phone number or go get that uh, mental, mental health provider that's on site. So just stepping back and looking at everything that we've talked about, there's just a few takeaways that I want you guys to remember if you can. Uh, so remember that you don't wanna argue about what's real and what's not real. And rather than focusing on the facts of what they're saying, think about the feelings that they might be experiencing. And then you can comment on those, how scary something might be. Um, remember not to take what they're saying or doing personally. It is not about you. Uh, if, if you're comfortable, do offer uh, a, just a space to listen without judgment. Remember not to crowd their personal space. And if you can, if there's some place where you are that is quiet and away from other people, you do wanna offer them that place to, to uh, step away and, and be less stimulated by the environment. Okay, so uh, just a reminder um, that people who are experiencing psychosis are incredibly afraid and overwhelmed and confused. And in fact, their reality every day is actually quite scary and unfriendly. So if you can imagine how it might feel to be experiencing the world in a different way, then perhaps you can then treat someone like you would want to be treated in those circumstances. If you have a moment for questions, Jeanette uh, asked if there were any differences with the presentation of a psychotic episode if it's drug-induced versus if it occurs organically. When you're seeing someone who is high on methamphetamine or just having an episode from schizophrenia, let's say, both are examples of psychosis. They might have hallucinations, they might be agitated, but in fact, you are not gonna be able to tell the difference at all. Um, once in a while, you know, you, you might be able to notice that they are sweating profusely and their uh, eyes are dilated. Um, and they might be making strange mouth movements, which, which tend to be more common um, from methamphetamine, but you can't necessarily make that assumption by what you're seeing. Usually the only way we can tell in the emergency room is if we get a sample of their urine and we test it, and then later we find um, whether there were drugs in their system or not. And then of course, sometimes you have people who are experienced 
experiencing both mental illness symptoms and substance abuse on top of one another. But it's it to the to the even to the trained eye, it doesn't look any different. And then we have um, one other question about how do you work with clients who are not responding to medications, um, but are still having active hallucinations? You know, I would just reiterate everything that that we talked about in this discussion. Um, if you have, if, you know, I'm, I'm not clear about what resources are going to be available to people at their different sites. You certainly could encourage them to go back to the clinic and have a discussion and, and be honest about the fact that um, the medicines, they feel like the medicines aren't working. Um, if the question is more like, how do you introduce the topic of maybe their medicines aren't working? Um, you know, you, you could just ask them if they've been taking their medicine because oftentimes if they're maybe forgetting to take their medicine, not taking it all the time, then it might not be working. Or if they're also using substances on top of the medication, then the medication actually won't work at all. Um, drugs will always be more powerful than the medication that we can offer. Um, but you could encourage them to just go, go back to the clinic and, and have a discussion with their doctor. And I believe that most clinics are doing um, phone or video at this point. Uh, it might not be an in-person meeting, but they could certainly uh, contact their doctor and have that conversation. We have some more questions yeah. coming in. Uh, <laughs> they said, can someone be in a constant state of mild psychosis? That was from Chantel. Yes. Um, you know, I would say that people with psychosis are just like everyone else. You know, there's ranges of difference. You can have really sort of um, obvious symptoms like that gentleman with the red sweatshirt that's running around talking about Barack Obama. Um, that's like a, you know, sort of in your face expression of psychosis. Some people, um, in fact, are experiencing hallucinations all the time and have uh, learned not to respond to them maybe in the way that some people do. So in fact, they can be hallucinating, but be quite quiet. Um, some, some symptoms of psychosis, which I didn't even touch on here, um, have to do with the way people, uh, in fact, neglect their hygiene, for instance. Um, you'll notice that's quite common. Those are symptoms of psychosis that are, you know, not necessarily showing themselves as, as, as obviously as hallucinations and agitation. Uh, some people just feel the need to isolate from others and, and be away from other people. Uh, and so these are the people that are probably hiding in the alley that you don't often see. Um, those are definitely symptoms of psychosis that are going on quietly all the time and people don't necessarily notice them. But they are equally uh, uh, treatable, both the more extreme versions and the less, ex less extreme versions. Thank you. Um, Jennifer asks, how long does a typical psychosis episode last? Ooh, that's a good question. And the answer is kind of there is no answer. 
Um, it really depends on if someone's getting treatment or not. Uh, some people cycle in and out of it naturally um, based on the, the kind of illness they have. Some people just sort of live in, in that frightening, unfriendly world all the time because they don't get treatment. Um, so it could be, you know, it could be days, it could be years, it could be a lifetime. It's really dependent on the person. And then um, Jose asks why some psychosis symptoms are hyper-religious or sexual in nature. Well, I mean, I, I would just say that um, I suppose that's sort of the question that we, we all might want to know why certain thoughts come to us and other thoughts come to other people. I don't think we entirely understand the brain and how it works. Um, I, everybody is an individual and, and the thoughts and the feelings and the expression of their psychosis can be completely different from one person to another. Now, per, perhaps sometimes it can be related to the environment or their upbringing. If there were, um, if perhaps they're a deeply religious and spiritual person to begin with, then perhaps their delusions might take on a more hyper-religious, a more super-religious um, uh, tone. Um, you know, it, it's, it's really, it runs the gamut. And, and, and honestly, we don't entirely understand. Um, let's see, Nita asks, how do you encourage someone to seek mental health services when they are refusing? Wow, you know, if I, if I knew that answer, I would be a wealthy woman. You know, I would just say in general, the important thing, um, and this is actually a symptom I didn't talk about in the discussion, but I can mention it now. Uh, there's actually a, a symptom of mental illness that's pretty common um, across the board for most severe mental illness. You'll also see this symptom in dementia, in Parkinson's disease, and people who have strokes, there's actually a part of the brain that becomes blind to the symptoms that they're experiencing. So in fact, the reason often people do not go to get help is because they don't see that they have a problem. They cannot see their own symptoms. They don't see the fact that perhaps living on the streets, um, is, that there's that there's anything wrong with that, that their, their bodies are slowly deteriorating because they're not taking care of them. They're actually blind to that because of the illness. That's the brain that's not allowing them to see the things that might be obvious to other people. So, um, you know, I would just say gentle encouragement, um, not all the time, you know, you don't want to badger them every day. Because, uh, you know, think about that, that doesn't really feel good if somebody were bugging you about the same thing over and over again. Um, so, you know, maybe you can just mention it once in, a, once in a while and remember to focus on the feelings and say, hi, you know, I noticed that you were feeling really frightened and you mentioned things that seem really scary. Maybe somebody could help you feel less afraid. Um, you know, put it in, put it in those terms. And, and again, re remember to do it, to do it um, not every day, not so often and, and, and be encouraging. 
All right, next one. I'm just going in order. Um, <laughs> can you speak to delusions versus hallucinations? This is from Alessandra. Sure. So hallucinations are actual visual, they are seeing something or they are hearing something. And, and it's important to remember, this is not imagined. This is entirely real. Their brain is actually rewired so that they can hear a voice just as well as you can hear my voice, or they can see an object or a person just as well as you see me now. Um, so that is a hallucination. It is entirely a creation of their brain, which is why we can't see it. But in fact, it's very real to them. Delusions, on the other hand, those are just thoughts, uh, usually strange thoughts that aren't true, uh, but you're not going to be able to convince them otherwise. And, and they're often quite uh, elaborate and complex. And if you spend the time to have a conversation with them and you ask them questions as they talk about these unusual thoughts, you will actually find that it's like a very sort of deep uh, chasm with all sorts of nooks and crannies and, and different um, turns and twists. And they've thought about these things quite a bit. And so they're actually quite interesting if you take the time to listen. Um, on that same thread, yes. uh, Olivia asked if for some examples of when they're not having an episode, trying to sort of build insight to help them understand about their hallucinations or del delusions. Um, oh boy, you know, I... I don't know that I have any, any tips beyond, you know, when I suggested that you focus on the feelings of the experience. So you might say, you know, hey, hey, Joe, remember three days ago when you thought you saw that dragon and you were really frightened by it? I'm wondering if you, if you might be willing to go to a doctor and talk about that experience. Um, I don't think, you know, it's not all that helpful to point out that the dragon wasn't real or you didn't see it. You know, you're not you're not going to get anywhere with that because it's so real for them. Um, and, you know, ultimately, I, I just don't I don't think you need to see it as your responsibility to help them understand that that what they're experiencing is illness. I think really the best thing you can do is have compassion in the moment and just be um, a, a non-judgmental witness and just be there to listen when they need it or to help them find treatment when they ask for it or help if, if, if it's gotten too, too much and, and you need to call in some help. Okay, um, there are a couple questions about psychosis related to health issues and psychosis, uh, if it presents differently with UTIs and older adults. Um, okay, so uh, you can definitely get psychosis, anyone without uh, a history of mental illness can get psychosis when we get sick or if we were to use drugs. Um, so sometimes what happens is, especially when, when we're older, we're much more susceptible 
um, to if we end up very sick, we end up with a urinary tract infection. Um, you know, you could get horribly sick from something else and end up in the intensive care unit. Oftentimes, that's when our brains are much more vulnerable to psychosis. So in fact, you will get we get calls for this all the time. Um, an elderly person who has no history of mental illness might be seeing things. Uh, they might be grabbing at things in the air that aren't there, and the nurses will notice that and, and call. Uh, so that is indeed psychosis, just the exact same case of psychosis that you get in any other with mental illness or with drugs. But the difference is we treat it in a different way. So with that, what we do is we treat it with um, antibiotics or, or whatever we need to treat the actual underlying illness. So if we treat the infection, uh, then in fact those hallucinations will go away. The psychosis will go away. Um, we have another medication-related question from Kimberly. If they're paranoid about taking medication, how to sort of try to work through that? Yeah. Um, I would say that that's hard even, you know, for doctors and nurses uh, working with people all the time who are quite paranoid about taking their medication. Um, again, I would, I would sort of encourage you not to be, you know, it's, it's, it's you don't want to be pushy. Um, sometimes it's it's quite easy when you're already in a paranoid state and then somebody's mentioning to you hey you're paranoid about your medications now i'm not likely to trust this person who's who's bothering me about being paranoid um i i think that it's really just best um to maybe point out um, that they're not they're not doing so well and you understand that that people who are struggling with similar symptoms uh, do get better with magic medication and just leave it at that. Uh, badgering is is gonna get you nowhere. Explanations, you know, you could explain up and down, and that's often um, not going to make a, a difference. And then Alessandra asked another question about interventions that aren't medications for those that are not open to that. She specifically asked about mindfulness and if that would be triggering for those with psychosis. Uh, no, I don't think mindfulness would be triggering. Um, there are there are sort of varying levels of, of illness. So maybe someone with more severe symptoms might not really be open to participating because, uh, you know, sort of being with other people and interacting is not something they're comfortable with. But if you are dealing with someone who is comfortable talking and, and doing an exercise, um, then that would be wonderful. Uh, we do know that some people with psychosis respond to different kinds of talk therapy, and that can be very helpful, and mindfulness is definitely one way to do that. So yes, please go ahead if they're, if they're willing and if they're interested. Yeah, I just to add on, grounding is a very simple one. Like it's through a lot of simple exercises through seeking safety, 
naming five things you can see, four things you can hear, three things you can touch, I think two you can smell, one you can taste. If you do that with someone that's actively experiencing psychosis to help ground them to the moment, it's something you can do with them and support them with it. That is a form of mindfulness that won't have them settle into their psychosis too much, which if they're really up and, you know, agitated and symptomatic, that's probably not a good idea. But grounding when they're up is an all right thing to try if they are open to it. And then let's see, there were a couple questions about people, um, clients that had that their psychosis, their voices were their friends. Um, and if it is a good idea for them to learn to befriend their voices, if the hallucinations can be beneficial to them. So yes, they're not everybody has scary hallucinations, uh, although that tends to be more common. Uh, some people feel actually quite supported by their voices. They might uh, sort of tell them to do things throughout the day, uh, you know, tie your shoes, brush your teeth, things like that. Um, they might come comment on things that are happening around them. Some people actually feel that their, their voices are sort of like a, a guiding angel who keeps them away from danger. Um, you know, it, it really, it could be anything under the sun because our brains can really produce anything where we have pretty amazing machinery, um, in our heads. So, uh, definitely that, that can, you know, you won't really know whether someone's having helpful or harmful hallucinations or often both until you talk with them. Um, I don't know that I would encourage them to befriend them. I think it's best just to just to be thoughtful and listen and ask about them. Again, it's it's not about sort of um, solving their problem or making a judgment about their problem. It's just being a witness to their problem. And I would just say not to underestimate the power of someone who's just willing to listen quietly without judgment. Um, if, if any of you have experienced that yourself, it can actually be profoundly supportive um, and helpful. So I would encourage that. This is for right now from Oscar, how to reduce fear around the pandemic with psychotic clients stuck at home. Yeah. The news is really scary for a lot of yeah. them. Yeah. You know, I would just say that that answer would be the same as as people who are not experiencing psychosis. I mean, we're all afraid and it's really easy to get caught up. Um, it might be a good idea to encourage them to take breaks from listening to the news or watching the news. Um, to take breaks from whatever source uh, of information is scaring them. Um, it doesn't even, you know, I would, I would say to encourage them to, to be seeking out factual sources, but it, even factual sources are scary now, right? Um, 
So I, I think the best would be to, to be taking breaks and, and having conversations if they can on the phone or through uh, FaceTime or, or however they're communicating with people about things that have nothing to do with COVID, literally just taking a COVID break, whether that's once a day or maybe a couple of days in a row, I think that would be really helpful. Um, in, in terms of sort of maybe addressing their fears uh, that might not be realistic, you certainly could address that and say, you know, I, I, I don't believe that, um, for instance, President Trump uh, injected you with COVID or something like that. But, you know, you could get, you could sort of get lost in the train of, you know, it's not this, it's not that. And again, you don't want to argue about what's true or not true, but just maybe addressing the fear. Uh, maybe they might feel better if you do some breathing exercises, if they don't want to do a COVID break. Um, anything that you would you would discuss with someone who's not experiencing psychosis is the exact same. This is a great question from Manar. I hope I said that right. What are some helpful, effective ways to improve ADLs and poor hygiene? Yeah, for someone that also struggles with med compliance, so impacts that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, one thing actually that I think if I could rewind a little bit that I forgot to address with, with if you're talking to somebody on the phone who is experiencing psychosis and they're also uh, really worried about COVID, uh, a really important thing to do is actually remind people to sort of go back to basics. When you're at home all day, every day, you kind of lose track of time and, and sort of normalcy. And it's really easy to maybe roll out of bed in your pajamas and go straight to the TV and watch until, you know, your eyeballs fall out and then roll back into bed. So what I would encourage you to talk to people about is just, you know, establishing a basic routine of getting out of your pajamas, taking a shower, getting in some regular clothes, um, establishing something that you might do every day. Uh, maybe I'm going to call, I'm going to call Joe every other day and I'm going to call Molly the other days that I'm not calling Joe. Um, just establishing real basic routines can help. Um, for people who are neglecting their hygiene, you can certainly remind them, um, you know, hey, it would, it would be helpful if we could um, take a shower once every week. You know, start start simple, make it doable. Um, maybe talk with them about is there anything that they're worried about about the shower or about the soap or the process of getting clean. Um, sometimes they're there they have ideas that are connected, their delusions are connected to getting clean or getting in the shower or soap, and and that's why they're not bathing. So you have to remember that it, it, there are. Um, sort of layers to 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 their experiencing to their experience that you might not be aware of and so you know just ask and talk about it what is something that they could do maybe they could brush their hair um every day and and that's that's one sort of activity of daily living you could encourage maybe they love cooking it's also it's always great if you know their interests 
um, to encourage them to do those on a regular basis and, you know, write it down in a calendar, write it down in a book. So you, you know, like those old fashioned um, calendars that we used to walk around with and have times and say, okay, at one o'clock, it's going to be my uh, time to brush my hair or brush my teeth or whatever. Um, I would encourage that. Great. Um, we um, also in residential did an ADL chart. So if they didn't want to shower on Monday, we'll make Wednesday shower day and Thursday's laundry day. Just one thing each day. You make yes. the bed on Friday. That's a start. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah great um, idea. Oh, there was someone that was talking about differential diagnoses over MDD with psychosis versus schizoaffective disorder, depressive type, how to kind of tell the difference. Well, I'd wonder why that's necessarily important to know the difference. I, I would say that there's, when, when, when people have, um, let's say, psychosis from a mood disorder, so it could be from depression, it could be from bipolar disorder, it could be from schizoaffective, there are certain qualities to the psychosis that might, in fact, different. Um, but in general, I'm, you're going to treat the psychosis in the same way. You're going to treat it with the same medications. I mean, certainly if they have major depression with psychosis, you're going to also treat it with depression medication. Whereas maybe if you have bipolar disorder with psychosis, you're going to treat it with a psychotic medication, antipsychotic medication and a mood stabilizer. So there might be differences in medication, but you're actually not going to, um, you're not going to interact with them differently. You're not going to, uh, you know, besi besides medication options, which are sort of more um, doctor level, there, there's nothing you're going to do differently. Um, if, if you are concerned about uh, a client or a loved one and you're not sure about the difference, you could always have a conversation with a doctor. Um, you know, you could maybe accompany or I guess you're not going to physically accompany the the client, but maybe you could get on the phone with the client if they're if they're comfortable and say and ask and ask your client if they if they wouldn't mind if you had a conversation with the doctor and then you can talk about the differences. Matthew asked about how emotions and hallucinations relate to each other. If at all, do stronger emotions result in stronger hallucinations? Hmm. No, I don't know about the strength. Um, certainly, uh, so I, I would say it's probably a, an, a, an arrow that's going both ways. So your emotions, uh, let's say you're feeling really sad. We know that those can cause hallucinations that are going to be more sort of uh, encouraging of that sadness and and maybe you're gonna have more hallucinations that are are surrounding um, death or or loss um, whereas if you're having if you're feeling happy you might be having hallucinations that are more about I don't know um, I'm Jesus I'm the president and they might be more what we call grandiose 
Um, and we also know, though, that it can go the other way around, which is to say that uh, let's just say you're you're sitting and you start hearing hallucinations that are, you know, saying that you're ugly and you don't smell good and you're a terrible person and you don't deserve to live. You know, you start to hear that every day and you're going to feel actually quite angry. Um, so it's really, you know, emotions and hallucinations go hand in hand and go in both directions. Good question. Thank you so much for doing this. This was wonderful. Thank you guys. Great questions. Thank you for listening and participating. <laughs>